Good morning. My name is Daniel Brochu, and I want to thank you for your prayers. I'm here to read John 18, 24 to 40 to you today. And after the Annas, the high priest, questioned Jesus, we read, He then, Annas, set him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing, warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of a man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, you yourselves um, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, the Jews said to him. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Our own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If any kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world, from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you with the Passover, so you do want me to release to you, the king of the Jews, they cried out again, Not this man, but Barnabas. Now Barnabas was a robber. Thank you very much, Dan, for that reading. Thank you, Pastor Tom, for the idea to make that happen. That was uh, it's an incredible thing for us to be connected, right, to people that uh, feel a little bit disconnected. And so uh, this is really what the body of Christ looks like, and this is how it moves forward. So it's really incredible to be able to to have Dan read that this morning. And I want to apologize at the outset because I'm a little bit frazzled and, and, and I'm battle-weary this week. Yeah, I get your sympathies. Everyone go, ah, Thank you. See, you're so much kinder than the elders. We were on a retreat this week. And a couple of them that shall remain nameless, Gus Moe and Tim Corbett, told me that I had to suck it up, be a man about it, and press through. 
But we had our members meeting last Sunday, which was incredible. Thank you so much for those of you that stuck around and participated and had a lunch with us afterwards. And like I said, we had the elders retreat and we asked their wives to come along. And so we had this incredible time together. I just want to tell you um, how blessed you are, we are as a church to have... Um, I am surrounded by some very dedicated and compassionate and missional-minded men and their wives who are dead set on seeing this church come together as a family, see it come together as a unit for us to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ in the way that we look after one another. And we spent a day and a half exercising that, wrestling with how to get there, and praying uh, for you all and for our um, wisdom going forward in that. And so it was just an incredibly special time, and and uh, I think I think it's very exciting to see what the Lord has ahead. So we had that going on, and then somewhere in the midst of all that, I'm a little foggy on the details, we welcomed the both the Cole family and the Small family. We became something related a few years back. Welcomed a new granddaughter this week. So, yeah. So, I should have had a picture because who else gets a 16-foot screen to brag about their new granddaughter? But anyway. So, Theodora is here and she's amazing, but she's really, really puny. Really cute. All right. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and so I appreciate you letting me get that out of the way. If you are visiting with us today, I just want to let you know, the, the way we approach the teaching here at Faith is we go through the Word of God in a kind of a systematic fashion. We go through a book of the Bible, you know, from the beginning to the end, and we found ourselves now in John chapter 18. John is the fourth gospel uh, written from the uh, from the apostles, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, if you've got your Bible with you, go about two-thirds of the way in, you'll find the New Testament. You'll see those four names, and we're on the fourth of those names. John has written his gospel later than the other three wrote theirs, and he's coming at it often with the same stories, often with the same pieces included in terms of detail, but he's also looking at it from a different angle, and he's trying to emphasize some very important things that the Spirit led John to write because the other three covered different angles. There's no contradictions. There's just places where the story is filled in and there's places where um, some of those details are skipped over because we'll let the other guy get it kind of thing. Of course, all under the uh, the inspiration and the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so we're coming to John chapter 18 this morning, um, looking at something very specific that John wants to portray. John wants us to see what true power and what true authority looks like. Jesus is about to encounter through various trials. He's about to encounter phony displays of, of power and authority. He's going to encounter people who think they have the upper hand on him and they're going to be the ones punishing him and putting him through the business and stuff. But it's really at every turn Jesus continues to flip the script. Remember, last week we had uh, we had caught up to the disciples being led by Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was near the place that they had had their, their um, dinner, their Passover dinner uh, in the upper room. It's near the place where Judas um, left to start the process of betraying the Son of God. And Jesus dismissed him and said, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And as Judas sneaks out, the disciples didn't even really know what he was up to. And that set the arrest in motion because Judas is going and he's meeting with the, the authorities 
quote unquote, it will be the theme of our discussion this morning. And he's saying, I know where he's going to be. He always goes to the garden to pray. It's a very special place for him. We can catch up with him there. So while Judas is doing that, leading the soldiers in, Jesus is walking slowly, kind of meandering, if you will, with his disciple. And he's, he's giving him those final words, the most important things that they need to keep burned in their brain when they go through what's about to go down. And so Jesus then uh, gets encountered by Judas. Judas goes and gives him that deceitful kiss. Kisses him on the cheek and says, friend, because he told the soldiers, that's going to be the one you're going to want to arrest is the one I kiss on the cheek. So Jesus knew what was going on and he challenges Judas. Is that how you'd betray the son of God is with a kiss? And then they ask, they said, Jesus says, so who are you looking for? And the soldiers, the leaders answered, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And we said that in the English text that we have, it says, I am he. But what he was saying was, I am carrying forward the name that God gave himself, even to Moses back in the Old Testament, when Moses said, who should I say is sending me? And God says, tell him, I am has sent you. And what did our text tell us last week? Jesus says, I am. And the hundreds, not just five or six that got tripped up over their armor, the hundreds of soldiers that came to arrest Jesus knocked over like dominoes. It's a subtle, tiny little piece in the scriptures. And Jesus, using that same power that can calm the seas and raise the dead, knocks them over to remind them, you're not as in control as you think you are. What I do from this point on is by my volition, not because you've caught me, not because you've arrested me. Peter, having none of it, though, we remember he takes action. That's who Peter is. And he goes after the chief priests or the, 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 the leader's chief servant. And instead of killing him, he kind of misses or goes off the helmet or something and lobs the guy's ear off. And the text tells us that it, this man had a name. It got really personal for the soldier real quick. And so did Jesus. He stoops down presumably picks up the dude's ear. And like we said, Mr. Potato heads that thing right back on. Voila, you're good. Jesus has a very impersonal encounter with Malchus and perhaps that's the reason why we know his name, but it also comes up again in our text this morning. And Jesus reminds Peter, this isn't how we're going to fight this battle. I could have legions of angels come and protect me. This is not what we're doing. I am waging a different war. I am waging the war on the sin of mankind, and I'm going to save them from that sin. This is how it happens. I must lay my life down for them, not win in a political sense or restore uh, Israel to its glory or anything. We're going to change the hearts of men as it's been prophesied for so long. John wants us to see in his gospel account this very dark backdrop as compared or contrasted to the brilliant shining glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this cast of characters is providing for us this incredibly bleak and dark backdrop. All for, for, for John to be able to paint on his canvas the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Judas has already demonstrated his betrayal. Peter's denial is coming. The Pharisees are going to try to manipulate the, the uh, judicial system and, and weave their web of deception in order to get about uh, to, to attain what they were looking for, and that is the murder of Jesus Christ. 
And all of that's going to be playing right before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he's going to demonstrate his weakness. It's this bleak, dark background. And what I, what I call our attention to it early so that we can see the glory of Jesus Christ at every stop. We're going to need a little bit of time to do it. Um, if you're visiting with us today, uh, it isn't our intention to go so long in a particular message, but we trust that this is important information because the, the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of his word, is what changes our hearts. And so we'll be praying that it's relevant all the way through. So let's stick with John's narration. He keeps a pace that moves pretty quick. He bounces back and forth in the scene. There's lots of things the other Gospels fill in. I would love to be able to take the time to go there, but we're not going to be able to. We might make some passing comment. So I'm going to back us up before the text that Dan read for us just to set some context. Let's go back to verse 12 of John chapter 18. The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that the one man should die for the people. It's interesting that Judas was the one that recommended when you catch up to this guy, you're going to want to bind him. Why? Because he can do things as he proved when he said, I am, and they knock over. Isn't it interesting? I don't have time to camp on this, but isn't it interesting that Judas, knowing the power of Jesus Christ, having seen it on display, being in the front row, still didn't think that maybe I'm on the wrong side of this thing. Isn't it amazing? The deception that can come from our own sinful hearts. Judas had other agenda had, had had another agenda in mind and the inconvenience that this could be the very son of God wasn't even registering to him. Anywho, we have a couple of priests here. We have Annas who is a high priest used to be still carries the title like we do with presidencies. And then we have his son-in-law Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. And it's interesting. It's, it's important for us to see the high priest as something other than our minds want to imagine a lot of religious superiority, a lot of, um, uh, uh, intentional or profound heart after God. And they just get Jesus a little bit wrong, but they're really trying to do good things for God and stuff. I want to change our perspective just a little bit because that will help us understand their actions following. Uh, perhaps you've seen, don't admit it if you have, perhaps you've seen a few mobster movies. And the thing that always strikes me, anytime you see a mobster portrayed on a screen, it's like they'll go from, you know, whacking Vito, who, you know, should have done right by the family. They'll get rid of him. And then it's almost like in the next scene, you'll see him in church, lighting a candle, doing the Our Father and blah, 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 and everything. And it's like, well, that's the family religion. It's what we do, you know. That's a little rocky in there. Sorry about that. But how do they separate the action of what I just did in my, with the scripture we call in my flesh, in my sin? How do we separate that? And then all of a sudden I can participate in some religious exercise because that's sincere. It's my family religion. It would be better for us to see this family of high priests is really what's going on here. There's, there's, um, you know, like we said, you know, we got a son-in-law here and everything. The high priest position was like a political appointment that the Jews would find that person who could, who could walk that fine line between being an authoritative figure for the Jews, but also kind of a political representative to the Romans who were their occupying force that they answered to. But it wasn't just so that they could be like, Oh yeah, sorry, sorry. Yes, master. Yes, master. They 
picked fights with the Romans sometimes and said, we're Jews, we don't, we're not having any of this. And so you needed that right figure. It was somebody, if, if you found a good one, you kept him. Caiaphas had been there for a while, had a really good long run. He knew how to be very political. He knew how to uh, uh, make angles and, and get things done. He was, he was effective that way. And as we've seen, even in our own polit- political circles, often the, the person that gets the most done has sold lots of pieces of their own soul along the way. This is Caiaphas. You see, this is affecting their family business as well because religious people needed rams and uh, lambs and uh, turtle doves to sacrifice. And so what better business to be in? So again, you got that mobster thing going on here. The high priests have a whole empire of financial um, stability. Jesus comes into the temple and calls them on their game and starts flipping tables over and, and, and saying, you're taking advantage of the people, you're extorting them. So Jesus is really bad for the family business. You can see the parallels, right, where this is going? This isn't just a bunch of religious guys who just didn't see the Messiah coming. These were guys who were threatened by God's very plan to save mankind, and it was very inconvenient to them. So we go back to our text in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, and we don't know exactly who this disciple is, John often doesn't refer to himself by name. And John would have also had some family connections to the high priesthood. So possibly we're talking about John here. That disciple was known to the high priest. So he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. He wasn't known to the high priest and he was hanging back. So the other disciple, most likely John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So it was the servant girl who was at the door that said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And like without any hesitation, the brave and mighty Peter says, no, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Imagine as his savior is being persecuted and dragged around and it's that time of year where it's really pretty damp and cold and everything and Peter's going, I need some fire. I'm just, you can see Peter walking away from everything he bragged about saying that Jesus could count on him for. He's keeping his distance, and yet his biggest threat, it would seem, after bragging that I could take on the world for you, Jesus, even if the rest of these cowards, those that were in the disciple, that was his inference, even if these cowards walk out on you, I will always be there, and I won't let anything happen to you. So it was the servant girl who said, are you one of them? He's like, no. He gives in to her. He's threatened by her. John MacArthur says that, so oftentimes that we psych ourselves up for all these big battles. We can picture, you know, being the hero of some grand thing. And it's these little mini battles that come and take us down because we didn't see it coming. We hadn't prepared ourselves to have integrity in all of those situations. Peter was caught off guard and he sounded like the rest of us would have. This great valiant figure sounded pretty wimpy. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him. He says, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together, and I've said nothing in secret. I just want to pause here for a second. 
Because they're having a trial in the middle of the night, which they are not allowed to do. By their own customs and rules, they are not allowed to bring Jesus in when no one else is looking. It needs to be public. It needs to be available. And then secondly, they can't ask him questions that would incriminate himself. We say it the same way. We say, you know, you have the Fifth Amendment. If, if, if you have a case against me, you need to build it. You need to prove it. And Jesus says, I haven't done this stuff in secret. There should be thousands of people that you can question and ask what I've done, what I've said. So even in his surrender, even though he is giving himself over to the authorities, he's still standing for what is right. Keep that in mind as we wrestle sometimes with what does it look like to be a Christian in a hostile world? Can we still stand for justice without without uh, without um, uh, being uh, uh, like Peter and cutting ears off with the sword? Can we still submit to the, the stress and the trials that we have without um, compromising our integrity on what's right and what's good? Jesus is showing a way to do both. He's saying, you guys, he's using it to their embarrassment. He goes, you guys are blowing your own rules. I see where this is going. But again, it's not because he's a victim. He's pretty much arranged the whole scenario. Verse 21 says, so why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, then why are you striking me? Annas then sent him, frustrated, not able to get anywhere. Jesus is putting them on trial instead, says maybe my son-in-law can handle this, sends them off to Caiaphas as they're continuing this absurd and obscene amount of trials. There were a total of six trials that Jesus was facing in these moments from the religious people of Annas and Caiaphas, and they represent, of course, the Sanhedrin, that ruling authority, so they're questioning and trying to figure out what's going on. And then when when they that gets only so far, they knew they would need the Romans to do what they really wanted to do, so then they sent him to Pilate. Pilate's kind of juggling Jesus and saying, I can't quite make sense of this. Oh, wait, what? He's from where? Okay, let's send him over to Herod, because he's actually in Herod's jurisdiction. He's like, phew. Okay, great. Herod plays around with a little bit, mocks Jesus and everything and says, I'm done with this upstart. I've got no business. Let's send him back to Pilate. So the problem of Jesus comes back on Pilate's shore. All of this, Jesus is enduring and watching the circus around him. And with all of this questioning and made up charges, Jesus is still the one to put them on trial. So where are we going with this? Let's get into our text this morning. But as we're doing it again, I can't emphasize enough the the dark and, and heavy backdrop of, of sinful and failed humanity and the glory of Jesus Christ shining brightly. And the first point I want to make along those lines is that while you and I would deny Jesus, he will defend us. Verse 25, we go back to Simon. He was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And again, so he denies it and says, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. I saw what you did to my cousin. I was there. We're going to talk about this at family dinner for a long time. Are you sure you're not one of them? I saw you in the garden with him, but Peter again denies it. And at once, the rooster crowed. Most likely you know the story well, but as 
Peter was bragging to Jesus that he could count on him for anything. Jesus reminded him before the rooster crows, which was going to happen in the early hours of the night. He said, you're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. And other gospel accounts capture for us that at the moment that, that he heard that rooster crow, he locked eyes with Jesus and Jesus looked at him like, didn't we have this conversation? You and I can see ourselves in each of these characters' actions if we look close enough. That's the hard part for us to see. And our denial of Jesus is inevitable. We were born in the same sinful flesh and the same weakness as Peter. No doubt we've had the same aspirations. Lord, you can count on me or I, I want to be that person and that's, that's who I'm going to be only to fall and to kind of have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, why can't I get this right? What's wrong with me? It gives us kind of a strange comfort to understand that we are born in that same weakness. That is the curse that's been handed down to all of mankind. The scripture says that you and I were born in sin. And that's what caused Peter to fall to the weakest form of persecution. Peter wasn't as strong on the inside as he claimed to be, as he thought he was. Inside, he was just sinful flesh. Only Our only faithfulness... And our only reliability that we'll ever find in this life is, is found in Jesus. Our world right now is obsessing with self-perception. It's all about how you see yourself, how you can make yourself, all that sort of stuff. And Christians, though, are called, in contrary, to focus on a Christ obsession. Self-improvement, apart from becoming Christ-like, is always going to end up in this Peter-like failure, this kind of denial, because we aren't ever going to be as good as the image we've set for ourselves of this world has set for us. And there's blessing in that. There's comfort in that. If I can acknowledge that I am not uh, capable in and of myself to be that good, to be that reliable, to be that dependable, to be that improved then I've got to look for a source who is. And again, Jesus shines brightly against that backdrop. So for all of us, Peters, what we also need to understand is that our defense is secure. If there was a trial for Peter in that moment, Peter, are you guilty of denying Jesus? He'd have to be like, yep, guilty as charged. John, the writer of this gospel, also wrote another smaller letter And he says in chapter two of that letter, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, that would be great. That's the goal. That's what our calling is in Christ. We are called to not sin. But in the grace of Jesus Christ, there is a but after the period. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a representative. When we're standing in court, we have someone, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who's standing at our side saying us, don't say anything. Don't answer that question. Let me talk to the judge. Because he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, those who would believe. The propitiation is the one who says, look, judge, I know you're angry with this person and you want to throw the book at him, but I'm telling you, I paid the penalty already. I've taken care of the debt. So you put it on me and, and the law will be satisfied and the judge agrees. That's what happened with Jesus coming and dying in our place. So Peter... In all of us, 
who are born in that sin, who are going to deny him, who are going to fail, have that. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. So positionally in Christ, we're good. But we still have this growth thing to work out. How do I get myself to not be in that situation? Just because I'm prone to it doesn't mean I'm just going to keep doing it, right? Doesn't mean I never try to stand up for Christ and stop rejecting him. So let's just kind of quickly look. What does a denial look like? We, we've seen it in blatant rejection from Peter. You know, uh, do you know Jesus? Nope, don't know him. Can't pin it on me. That's, that's that blatant rejection. Or sometimes we deny him by staying silent when someone should speak up on behalf of Jesus and it's really obvious to us. And we go, God, I wonder who's going to... So they didn't, they didn't ask me if I believe him, but they're asking who does and I say nothing, either in my actions or in my opportunity to speak up. But I think most of us would say that we probably experience a denial of Jesus by failing to live consistently what we claim to believe. And how do we get to that place? Again, we look no further than Peter who had an overconfidence in his own ability. He'd just bragged to Jesus, I can do it. You can count on me. And then he also had an underappreciation for the strength or the ability of his enemy. His, his knockout punch came from a servant girl. And we can quote Mike Tyson in this, right? He's like, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right? This is what happened to Peter. I have a plan. Jesus can count on me. He gets punched in the mouth by the servant girl and he's all dizzy and, and stumbling and doesn't know what to do next. When we deny Christ, we, we, we deny Christ when we fail to walk humbly and fail to rely on his strength. In all situations, guilty as charged, that is us. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking this is just all about piling the guilt on us, remember, we have an advocate who will forgive us of that and improve us and get us ready for the next battle. And the irony here is that the one that Peter denied was the only one that could actually defend him. Secondly, as we move through our text, it's important for us to see that while you and I are jumping in mud puddles, Jesus is offering us clean water and a towel. Verse 28, this is seen in the, in the religious leaders, okay? We're jumping from Peter now to Caiaphas. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they could not be muddy, so that they couldn't be dirty and disgusting but could eat the Passover. They wanted to be clean for dinner. Of course, we're not talking about literal dirt and stuff. We're talking about a a dirt of the soul. And And the rule was, the law was for God's people, even from the Old Testament, is that to approach these ceremonies, that you needed to be ceremonially clean. So there were rules, you know, don't touch a dead body, uh, seven days before Passover and other different things. Don't come in contact with various forms of blood and other things. And so there were these things that God had established. And then the Jewish people said, but that's not clear enough. Let's continue to add some more um, guidelines and procedures and things which become the Mishnah. And so they write all of those more man-made explanations of God's law. 
and and they're and they're piling on this system of of what ends up being oppression and this black and white legalism where they can tell all the faithful people what you can and can't do and they're about ready to violate their own law if they take this too far so there's a couple of clues for us here they they take jesus to the governor's headquarters so now they're on roman territory they're in a gentile household and it's early morning, which isn't abnormal. They didn't have to get the governor out of bed. It's typically the time that they start. They're, they're getting their work day going at, you know, three, four, five in the morning and finishing somewhere around mid-morning or so. So it's, it's, it's there. He's, he might be expecting business in that sense. But they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters because they wanted to be able to eat Passover and to enter the house of a Gentile would make you ceremonially unclean. And for seven days, they would have to not do anything uh, connected to uh, the ceremony of God's people. And, and this is Passover. You can't be the high priest and not be present at the Passover meal. So we're not going to risk that. Picture again the mobster kneeling down in the, ch- in the church doing this sort of stuff. we got to be able to do that, so let's not do anything over here that risks us doing that. You see, they wanted to be ceremonial clean, but the, the irony is this, and this is uh, what D.A. Carson points out for us. He says, the Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. At the very time, they're busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who alone is the true Passover. Yeah, yeah, we're dragging the Son of God towards his murder, but we don't want to stand under a Gentile roof because then we'll get a little dirty and can't eat Passover. This is why John also warns us in his little letter later on that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This filth of the soul that we have is inherent. This isn't just a learned behavior. We're not born basically good and then we become these evil people. We start at the place that has a propensity or or a, an ability to be these kinds of people, to manipulate every situation to our fancy or that takes care of us or for our advantage and stuff. These guys just happen to be really perfecting it. They're on steroids with this whole thing. But sin is deceiving. It's illogical. And many of us have been burned by the sin of other people. You've, you've received suffering at the hand of people that have done the most bizarre and, 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 and illogical things. And psychiatrists and psychologists have tried to help us understand where some of these behaviors come from for so long. But we can't walk away from the fact that when we are born in sin, it starts to manipulate and do some really crazy, illogical, deceitful things in our life. And we're seeing this going, how can these guys be so blind? If we try to make sense of sin, we'll be pulling all of our hair out. Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, so what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, here's some sarcasm here. If this man were not doing evil, would we have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, just take them yourselves and judge them in your own law. But the Jews responded back. They said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Dum, dum, dum. That is the, 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 um, the, the revelation of their intent with Jesus. We brought him to you because we can't execute him in the way that we see fit. They 
This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. As I said at the outset, it might seem a little bit weird that these Jewish leaders are speaking so flippantly and arrogantly with with Pontius Pilate. And we can't get into all the instances, but there's a war going on between these two parties, if you will. And Pilate is not doing so well, even by his own people. He's had three major run-ins with the Jews and he's offended them greatly. And part of the Roman system was that as they gave governors to these territories, they gave Jews the ability to report to someone over their head and say if it was going well or not. And Pilate already has three strikes on him. And so he's trying, he's caught in the middle. He's trying to placate the Jews a little bit, but he's also trying to show that he's still in charge and he's the leader and everything. And he's overplayed his hand in that area before. So Pilate's in a pickle here and the Jews know they've got him. They know that his reputation's on the line. They know that his, his family lineage and everything because he's married into this job. And he's like, man, I'm in a pickle here. And the Jews know it. So when he says, when he says with some semblance of wanting to know what's right or wrong in this, he wants to get the facts. What accusations do they have? They go, do you think that we'd bring them before you if we didn't have stuff? Listen, you're not here to question us. We just need you for the end result. So you let us worry about what he's done wrong and you just hurry this execution thing along. That's kind of the tone that's going on here. But Pilate has to be pretty careful. He can't just rush into these matters. And this is to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoke some chapters ago when he said, until the son of man is lifted up and he's referring to dying on a cross. And, and we would say, so, so why does he have to die on a cross? So the Jews are thinking we have to put him to death. They show a little bit later on with Stephen that they have the authority to put others to death. They stone him to death. But with Jesus, that wouldn't be enough. He needs to pay a different price. He needs to be made more a spectacle. And Deuteronomy tells us that anybody that's seen as, as, as hung on a tree is seen as cursed. So the Jewish leaders are saying, it isn't enough just to get rid of the leader. We've got to dismantle the morale of the entire movement. If we kill Jesus in a way that only the Romans have the authority to do, it'll be the most humiliating and, and publicly awe-inspiring kind of event so that the movement that comes up behind him, because we don't need a martyr here, they're going to be like, hey, wait, the, the Jews and the Romans are serious. And they're also going to doubt that Jesus had any power to begin with. How could someone who is capable of doing all those things die in such a horrific manner? So there's all this political move. There's all of this posturing for setting up their movement and their power in the future. And yet they thought they were being pure in the eyes of God, enough to go and eat the meal. That's what we do over here. But our stuff with God, we keep that clean. We keep that straight. The Bible tells us, though, that our purification is provided for us. It isn't something we can earn. Paul says to Titus, he says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what Jesus gave himself for was to provide our purification, to do it for us, to to bring us for his own glory. And the irony here is that the very one that they were killing is the one that could purify them. You ever seen those videos of someone trying to 
uh, free up a, a wild animal and that animal happens to be kind of dangerous and the compassion of the people is like, I want to loosen their, their hoof or something from that rock crevice, but I don't know what's going to happen once that animal's free. Hopefully he says thank you and just moves on. And it's that scary moment and you're watching the video going, what? I don't recommend you go out and look for these things. But um, most of the time they're on video because they have a good ending. But then the animal and then they free it. But it's like, how do you have so much compassion for an animal that could turn around and devour you? That's kind of exactly what Jesus is doing for these. He's there before them, ready to free them from the trap that they're in. And it, and it is and the freedom that he's offering, they're going to turn right around and bite them with it. That's what seems to be at play here. Thirdly, as we're introduced to Pilate's actions and his questioning and things, we're going to see that while you and I deliberate and try to manipulate situations for our own positive outcome, Jesus is instead pointing a better, a clearer way, and it's a way of truth. Verse 33. So Pilate, remember he's in a pickle, he's got a lot of things here to manage. He enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, So are you... Are you really you the king of the Jews? And remember, Pilate's annoyed by these Jews. So maybe the question is, it's definitely there in the language. You, they picked you as their king. All I'm seeing is a guy who's been dragged around town. Who's looked like he's been sweating blood all night. Who's all mangled and and wrecked and emaciated and things. And people aren't even claiming they're here to support you and stuff. You, you're the king of the Jews. You could almost hear Pilate say, well, about figures, these people, they would pick someone like you instead. Jesus says, so do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? In other words, are you, are you asking just on behalf of the Jews because you want to rule well to take care of them? Or are you more concerned from a Roman standpoint? Am I a threat to something else to you? So do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, what am I, a Jew that I would even be concerned about these things? I don't care what happens to your people, basically. It says your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. So tell me, you've got one last chance. Tell me what you've done. Pilate is trying to figure things out in his own wisdom, but... The problem with human wisdom is that it's selfish. It's looking for a way of escape for itself. It's unreliable. But Pilate's also trying to exercise some careful judgment. It's his own skin that he's trying to save. So he's not trying to do this haphazardly. Perhaps he's learned a few things from his previous failures. And he's seeing through the Jews' false accusations. He's seeing that they've trumped up charges, that they haven't done this the right way. And so he's thinking, how do I get this guy out of this and me too, even though they seem hell-bent on killing this man? So when Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord? He's actually saying, are you saying you're threatened by me? In other words, am I a, am I a, a physical king to you that would threaten Roman, uh, the, the Romans? Or am I a spiritual king that might threaten your heart? Again, with all these interactions, Jesus is putting the accuser or the blamer or the interrogator on the defensive. So Jesus answers his question, but more straight to the heart. In verse 36, his answer is, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So then Pilate said to him, 
Oh, so you're, we're back to the king thing. So you are a king then. Jesus answered, you've said rightly that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you hear Jesus? He's saying, the, the, yeah, I'm a king, but I'm a king of a kingdom that doesn't need earthly soldiers to come and do battle. Again, I could call legions of angels. They would be outside fighting right now. You'd hear swords clanking, all those sorts of things. But my kingdom is not of this world. To which Pilate has to really wrap his head and his heart around this as we do today. We keep trying to wage a war in the physical world that God's never called us to, to wage. He's calling us to be soldiers in a spiritual battle. And yet we keep only fighting the things that we can see and hear and touch in front of us. Myers says that the one conspicuous proof of this kingdom's absolutely foreign origin is its refusal to employ force. We do not fight, but sacrifice and suffer for its maintenance. Pilate's getting the answer from Jesus. He wants a little bit. Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate's like, okay, phew, no threat to Rome. Otherwise, I'd have to kill this guy instantly. This other stuff about the spiritual stuff and what he's a king of, I'm not sure what to do with that. And then he's also got the voice of his wife in his ear, which another other gospels cover, because Claudia had a nightmare the night before. And she woke up and she tells her husband, look, I don't know what this is all about, but I feel like someone's telling me you're to have nothing to do with this king of the Jews. You need to get him off your plate as soon as possible. So we go pick up again in verse 38. So Pilate responds to Jesus after Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate becoming the, the, the first postmodernist in, in history says, well, what is truth? This is what our culture is saying. I have seen so many variations of people claiming to be true and right and everything. And Pilate's like, I am over my head with bad decisions and poor attempts and everything. And I have given up on this whole idea of real truth, real power, real authority. None of it makes sense. What is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom. Bing. Here's the idea. Pilate says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. If I tell the Jews they can exercise that custom, I'm going to put up the worst dude, the one that they don't want back in society, and I'm going to put him up against the, this, this king of the Jews who I don't find any guilt in, and clearly they're going to let the good guy go, right? So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Probably shouldn't have said that. Irritates him a little bit more. But they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. He wasn't just a thief of like coins and stuff. This is like a deeper uh, title. He's uh, an insurrectionist. He's a menace. He's a public menace, both to the Jews and probably to the Romans. Nobody wants this guy around. And Origen says, the, the historian says that Barabbas' first name was most likely Jesus. And what Barabbas means is either son of the or uh, uh, son of a father or son of the father. Pilate says, I've got for you Jesus, son of the father, public menace, uh, murderer, robber, 
or I've got Jesus, King of the Jews, which one do you want? This is the deception of sin. This is how people get so cranked up on their agenda. This is how bad it gets, how callous we get when we walk away from the truth that even with such a a most obvious decision, we still would choose the other way. Not this king of the Jews. We want Barabbas. We loved that guy. We've missed him in society. Compared to this upstart, compared to this table thrower, compared to this miracle worker and everything, we'll take that public menace, even if he threatens the lives of our children, we don't care, we'd rather have. You see how bleak and and dark this backdrop is? The reason why you and I need to pay attention to this, the reason why the gospel is screaming loudly to us in this is because we have an opportunity. Do we take Barabbas, the the son of a father, Jesus Barabbas? Or do we take the king of the Jews, the real Jesus, the real son of the father? If we take Jesus, the real son of the father, we gain humility, which in contrast to this very dark backdrop, we see that people who defend themselves are friendless. Or we gain honesty because people who excuse themselves are factless. We start to get purpose because people who trust themselves are directionless. Hello, Pilate. But more than that, like Peter, we get forgiveness because people who believe in Jesus are guiltless. Against this backdrop, instead of uh, as he's facing betrayal, Jesus is nothing but loyal. As he's facing deny, denial, he's nothing but faithful. It, while he's facing greed, he's sacrificial. While facing weakness, he's powerful. Facing confusion, he's directional. Why wouldn't we choose him over Barabbas? Why wouldn't we choose him over our own power, our own greed? That comes as a surrender of the heart as the Holy Spirit works within us. So the question before us is, will you choose the replacement or the real son of the Father? Can I ask you to stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Thank you so much for your patience this morning. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for our time in the word and thank you, Lord, for recording history for us to learn from it, but also, Lord, for giving us life in the scriptures for it to infuse our lives. God, the spirit has come to transform us, not to just teach us interesting facts, not for us to have a history lesson or to read these pages like a novel, but instead, Lord, for the very truth of your will to transform our hearts. All we can bring to the table this morning is a willingness to receive it. And so, Lord, I pray that as your spirit moves through the hearts and the and the minds of the people present this morning and even those watching online and just hearing the truth of your word, Lord, I pray that you would change us by the power of your spirit. Cause us to be people that react to your grace with reception rather than denial. Help us, Lord, to recognize the strongholds in our life that keep us from giving ourselves over to you. Lord, change us by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.